Welcome to Get On The Mend from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy. So with evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers, take charge of your health. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted our lives and our health. The rate of cancer screenings dropped drastically in 2020. In this episode, Dr. John Kidwell, colorectal surgeon at Texas Tech Physicians and the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Medicine, talks to us about colon cancer, why early detection is key, and walks us through what happens during a colonoscopy, one of the most common ways to screen for colon cancer, a disease that is the third most common cancer and the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths. One in 20 people will be diagnosed with colon cancer in his or her lifetime. Dr. Kidwell, thanks for coming on our podcast. Melissa, thank you very much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Health Science Center? Sure. Obviously, my name is John Kidwell. I was actually born and raised here, went to undergraduate and med school here at Texas Tech, left to do my surgical training um, at Mayo in Arizona, and then did a colorectal fellowship in Greenville, South Carolina, and then came back here. Uh, I miss the place. My family's here and happy to be back. Now I'm one of the faculty at Texas Tech Health Sciences Center. I work out of UMC and out of Covenant doing colon and rectal surgery. What can you tell us about colon cancer? What is colon cancer? As far as what colon cancer is, There are many book chapters dedicated to answer that, but I will try and be uh, simplistic and rather brief. All the cells in your body rely on a normal uh, mechanism with checks and balances to make sure that the cells divide and replicate properly. When you get a certain accumulation of mutations in the genes, in those cells, then it causes the cells to produce or not produce things that it normally would. And that alteration in the products that the cell usually makes can result in its abnormal division or replication. And so you can get cells that don't die when they should, or you can get cells that divide way too rapidly, more rapidly than they normally would because of mutations in the genes inside those cells. And when that happens, these uh, cells often manifest as an abnormal clump of cells inside the lumen of the colon. And that's what we see as polyps. Why is it important to be aware of colon cancer? Well, and let me follow up on the end of that last comment on how colon cancer comes about. Whenever you have some of these alterations in the genetic makeup of the cells inside the lining of the intestine, and they are abnormally dividing or replicating, and they give rise to this abnormal clump of tissue inside the intestine, and we see that as a polyp. That doesn't necessarily mean it's cancer yet. In fact, most polyps are 
not cancerous, but they would be what we label as precancerous, meaning they are abnormal collections of tissues that have the ability to turn into a cancer. And when we say turn into a cancer, what that means is that all of a sudden, these abnormal cells have penetrated certain layers to where they are now outside of where their home usually is. That is what we call an invasive cancer. An invasive and cancer are somewhat, somewhat synonymous. To your question of why should we care about colon and rectal cancer, am I right? Is that what the question was? Yes. Okay. Why is it important to be aware of colon cancer? Yeah. So colon cancer is, and this depends on which society guidelines you're looking at, but it's one of the leading causes of cancer deaths in the world, especially in industrialized countries like ours. Third leading cause of cancer death in men, third leading cause of cancer death in women. It affects more than a million people annually. There's more than 100,000 new cases of colon and rectal cancer uh, diagnosed annually. Uh, So it's something that's quite prevalent. One out of 20 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in their lifetime. And so with a disease that has that much prevalence, it is important that we know as much as we can about it and uh, how best to prevent it, identify it, and deal with it. And how do we prevent it? Okay. Well, I'll talk about prevention first then, just because I think that's uh, something that many people don't realize that they can help prevent themselves or their loved ones in getting colon and rectal cancer. Like we talked about, the uh, molecular genetics that these mutations lead to abnormal tissue and this abnormal tissue can become invasive and then that's when it's a cancer. Uh, We can identify many of these lesions before they turn into cancer. And we do that through screening technologies. The gold standard for screening would be a colonoscopy. Um, More recently, the American Cancer Society have actually uh, changed their recommendations that at-risk individuals, average-risk individuals, should start getting screened at age 45 rather than age 50. And what a colonoscopy does is it allows us to see these abnormal clumps of tissues or polyps and remove them. And by removing these abnormal clumps of tissue or polyps, we're decreasing the risk of that individual uh, developing cancer in one of those abnormal clumps of tissue or polyps. And so that's one of the best prevention strategies out there. Also, there are other screening mechanisms or screening uh, procedures that can be done besides a colonoscopy. You can get what's called a CT colonography. Uh, You can get what's called a FIT test or a fecal immunohistochemical test. You can get even certain stool DNA samples uh, sent off. You can get something called a flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is like a truncated 
colonoscopy. So there are multiple ways to get screened, which means there are multiple ways for you to try and identify polyps and get them taken care of uh, before they turn into cancer. I also do want to note as far as the prevention, the ACS or the American Cancer Society and their recent recommendation for the age of 45 that's for average risk individuals. There are other individuals that have an increased risk for colorectal cancer, a risk that is more so than the average person. And those individuals are ones uh, who have family history of colorectal cancer or polyps, or certain individuals uh, with certain inherited genetic uh, disorders which predispose them to certain cancers, colorectal being one of them. If someone's not at high risk, at what age do you recommend people start getting screened? 45. Yeah, 45. And that's based on the American Cancer Society. There are other societies that still have the age of 50 there. I think you may see those uh, also go down to 45. But we'll We'll see more about that in the future. Can you tell us what we can expect from a screening? Well, Melissa, that depends on what kind of screening you're going to get. So if <laughs> the you most do common. It, so, yeah. So the, and that's a good point. So the most common would be a colonoscopy. Insofar as that is the gold standard for colon screening uh, to check for adenomatous polyps that can be removed and decrease your uh, chance of getting or succumbing to colorectal cancer. What you can expect is a bowel prep, meaning you have to drink a certain kind of solution and then stay in your house most likely because you're gonna have to make several trips to the bathroom. That helps clean your colon out. Your colon is another word for your large intestine, which is what is being evaluated in a colonoscopy. and we have to clean it out so that we can adequately look at the walls of your colon and make sure that we're not missing some polyp that would otherwise be covered in stool. So there's actually a certain rubric that we use to gauge how good a bowel prep is. And so a bowel prep for us is considered adequate if we can detect polyps five millimeters or larger. So if we can't detect polyps down to five millimeters, then to us, that is not an adequate bowel prep. And we'll need to either redo the colonoscopy in the future or do one of those other modalities that I spoke of earlier. So, you know, how does this happen? You come, you see us in the clinic, you tell us that you need a colonoscopy. We ask you some questions. Like, have you had any bleeding out of your bottom? Do you have any family members with a history of colorectal cancer or polyps? Have you had any changes in your uh, bowel habits? Do you have any abdominal pain? And then we get uh, some more family history, uh, do a physical exam. We schedule you for a colonoscopy and we tell you the risks, benefits and alternatives to that. The risks would be chance of bleeding, chance of perforation of the colon and a chance of abnormal reaction to sedation. Typically, the chance of bleeding if we removed one of the polyps, serious bleeding that would cause them to come back to the hospital would be less than 1%. Uh, 
the chance of perforation of the colonoscope through the colon wall, that would be uh, less than one in a thousand. So very low. And then the risk of just undergoing sedation so that they can get their colonoscopy performed comfortably, that risk is usually fairly low as well because we're not doing general anesthesia. Uh, we're just doing monitored sedation. So I tell you all that in the office, then I give you a prescription for the bowel prep. And in a week or two, you start the bowel prep. Dr. Bauckham, who is uh, my colleague, who is a colorectal surgeon here at TTUHSC with me, we both give something called SUPREP, which is a certain type of colonic bowel prep. It's what you call a split dose prep. You take half of it the day before your colonoscopy and then the other half of it the morning of your colonoscopy. Uh, there are other, what's the word, concoctions. Yeah. There are other brews, you know, that, that can be given. Uh, SUPREP, the one that we use, has been shown to have increased patient satisfaction and increased adenoma detection rate. And so that's why we use that, because there's some science behind it. And then the morning of, uh, you come in, you see me, you see the anesthesiologist. They give you some medication that makes you makes you a little loopy to where you don't, you're just having a good time. You don't really uh, mind what's going on. And uh, we take you back to the endoscopy suite. We do the procedure. And then you wake up in the post-anesthesia care unit. And we tell you not to make any big life decisions that day because you may be a little loopy still. And you can eat whatever you want to go home. And again, we iterate things to look out for, like excessive bleeding or excessive abdominal pain. We want them to let us know if that's occurring. But usually things go just fine. And then we see those individuals one or two weeks later and go over the pathology results of any polyps that we have removed, if we do remove any. Also, we tell them when their next colonoscopy needs to be based on their history and what we find during the colonoscopy. Are those every year or every other year? It, the, a colonoscopy? Mm -hmm. So it, it goes back to if you are an average risk individual if you, or if you're an increased risk individual. And there are many scenarios that I could play here. But let's say that you're an average risk individual with a normal colonoscopy, then you would follow up in 10 years. Let's say that you're an average risk individual who is found to have a few small adenomatous polyps, less than three, and they're all less than a centimeter. That I would tell you to follow up in five years. If you have a certain amount of polyps that are adenomatous polyps that are larger than a centimeter or you have three or more, and there are some other guidelines too, like if any of them have villus histology or any high-grade dysplasia in them, we tell you to have another one, in, another colonoscopy in three years. So it's just very dependent upon what we find at the time of your colonoscopy to guide us in telling you when your next colonoscopy should be. Also, like if you have a family history of colonorectal cancer, it depends on 
who in your family had it, what kind they had, whether it was genetically linked or not, what age they had it. There are just multiple factors that go into the recommendation of when you should have your next colonoscopy and what the interval should be between them usually. So a lot of a lot of different right answers there. One to two years you talk about. So certain individuals like those with inflammatory bowel disease, those with something called Lynch syndrome, individuals with familial adenomatous polyposis, which is FAP, those individuals can get colonoscopies every one to two years. And so there are a subset of patients out there who do need yearly or every other year colonoscopies. What happens if the results come back and they're not good? Uh, from a colonoscopy. Yes. So I'm going to put a situation out there. So uh, we do, a, let's say we do a colonoscopy and we find a mass in the a portion of the left colon that's too big for me to remove with my colonoscope. In that situation, I would finish the colonoscopy, see if there's any other lesions. And then I would take a biopsy of that one, that unremovable lesion. I would take a biopsy of it. I would ink that area with some tattoo on the inside. And then I would wait for the pathology. And in this setting, the pathology comes back as cancer. So what I would tell that individual, first, I would, I would tell them the same day that I did the colonoscopy, we found a mass in your colon. It was too large for us to remove in the way we normally remove polyps, and so we took a biopsy of it. That biopsy is going to be looked at under a microscope by a pathologist, and they're going to tell us what it is. I'll see you in a week, and by that time, we'll have the answer. So a week's passed. I'm seeing them in the clinic, and I explained to them. The pathologist looked at it, and it's a cancer. What we need to do now is stage the cancer, meaning we need to see where it's at, how big it is, and if it's gone anywhere else. For colon cancer, the staging is pretty simple. You get a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and the pelvis. You get a complete colonoscopy, and you get a certain blood tumor marker called a CEA level. And those stage the colon cancer for you. The two most common places that a colon cancer would metastasize to are the liver and lung. And so that's the CT chest and uh, the CT abdomen pelvis. That's what helps you ensure that there isn't any abnormal lesion in those structures. And it also gives you information on what the tumor in the, in the colon is like, if it's large enough to have a mass effect that you can see on CT and it can help you plan your operation. What is the treatment? And this, the treatment depends on when you catch it. I will be a little simplistic here just to try and make it easier to understand, but surgery is the mainstay of treatment for colon cancer. So what you want is you want to catch it early enough that it has not spread elsewhere. And in that situation, usually we've staged the cancer and we've seen, okay, it's not in the lung, it's not in the liver, there may be some lymph nodes 
right next to the colon that are a little abnormal, or maybe not. Maybe there are no abnormal lymph nodes in the mesentery right next to the tumor. Uh, so what we do is we go in there and resect that portion of the colon that has the cancer in it. And we want a five centimeter proximal and distal margin for that resected specimen. And usually what that means is we're taking all of the colon that is supplied by a certain blood vessel and we're removing that colon and then we're reconnecting uh, the colon that we didn't remove. How do we do that? There are three different ways. You, well, there are multiple different ways, but three most commonly used ways you can do that right now. And that's through an open incision, large open incision through the midline or just below the belly button. Or you can do these robotically, or you can do these laparoscopically. Now, sometimes you may go in robotically or laparoscopically, and certain amounts of scar tissue or other unforeseen circumstances will force your hand into doing the big open incision. But here at the Health Sciences Center, Dr. Bauckham and I frequently do a, a laparoscopic removal uh, or a robotic removal or or an open removal. We, we do all three of those. So the goal is to get that out, get it out before it's gone anywhere else. And then whether or not you get chemotherapy afterwards depends on uh, the stage of the cancer, meaning has it gone to the lymph nodes or not? And we don't know that stage of it until we've actually removed the tissue. So we do the surgery, we remove the tissue, they evaluate the specimen and evaluate the lymph nodes to see if cancer is spread to the lymph nodes. And typically, generally speaking, in colon cancer, if the cancer has spread to the lymph nodes that live in the fat nearby the colon, then patients get chemotherapy as well. Let's say that it has not gone to the lymph nodes. By and large, historically, people have not gotten chemotherapy for that. More recently, people have been looking at still giving chemotherapy to certain individuals to further decrease the risk of having a recurrence of colon cancer. But so far, what we've seen is the benefit is, for the most part, not great, talking like a 5% reduction in recurrence for individuals without positive lymph nodes who are getting chemotherapy. That's for individuals that didn't have metastatic disease or didn't have the tumor that had already spread elsewhere. Let's say we did the colonoscopy, we found the mass, we took a biopsy, and then we did the staging CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, along with the CEA level. And it showed that there were multiple lesions in the liver and possibly in the lung. And the lesions in the liver did not look receptible. Typically in that scenario, what you want to know is, is their primary tumor symptomatic or not? The primary tumor being the colon cancer. If you have a colon cancer that is metastatic, so it's spread elsewhere, and it's unresectable as far as the metastases go. It's spread elsewhere, and that 
those elsewhere lesions aren't resectable, then what you have to ask yourself, well, is the primary tumor symptomatic? Is it causing them to have an obstruction? Is it bleeding, causing them to be anemic? Is it causing them a lot of pain? So in those symptomatic primary patients with metastatic disease, there is a role for surgically removing the primary tumor and then them getting chemotherapy. For individuals who have metastatic disease, also known as stage four disease, who have an asymptomatic primary tumor, generally those individuals are going to get chemotherapy. And then you follow with restaging imaging to see how the tumor responds to the chemotherapy. What is the biggest misconception that keeps people from getting screened? I think there are a couple of things. One is just a lack of knowledge of the importance and ease by which one can get screened. I think a lot of people don't know that there are multiple things besides a colonoscopy that they can utilize in order to be screened. I also think a lot of people don't want to go through having a bowel prep. You know, you're drinking fluid and then having to evacuate your intestine quite a lot over a 12-hour period. And like I recently stated in an article, it's, it's much easier to do a bowel prep than it is to get your mind right about undergoing a major operation, which can, uh, which can be the case if you let one of these polyps go too long without removal. So I would say people don't want to get a bowel prep, people just not knowing the word not being out there that this really helps decrease their likelihood of getting colon rectal cancer and not knowing the other options. Are yeah. there any resources you can recommend for more information? Definitely the ACS or American Cancer Society is a good resource. Also the NCCN guidelines. That's a wonderful resource that a lot of physicians use to follow as guidelines for screening for different cancers. Colon cancer is one of them, rectal cancer is one of them. The last time I checked the NCCN guidelines, I still had age 50 as when to start for average risk individuals. Another resource that I utilize is American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgery, also known as ASCRS. That's kind of the big, it's like the American College of Surgeons, but for colorectal specialists. Um, and so that's our big governing group that stays on top of the latest and greatest colon and rectal literature. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'm happy to be back here in Lubbock, and I hope everyone keeps a good attitude amidst all this uh, recent you know, struggling in the world. And um, if you have any questions or concerns, look up myself or Dr. Bonham at TTUHSC and we'll be happy to see you. Thanks for coming on our podcast. And of welcome course. back. Thanks for having <laughs> me. Thank All you. right. Thanks for listening to Get on the Med. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. 
Get On Demand is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. Mm-hmm.